just so excited to get up here because the video announcements were so fantastic. I don't know who that young guy is, but he just was remarkable, wasn't he? And come on. Paige whispered, I think you're a little biased. I said, you be quiet. Leave me alone. Proud father. Proud father. So, you know, as we were in, in, our, in our worship time, I was, uh, I was thinking back to uh, a time in my life when, when I was running from God really hard. And, and some of you might be able to relate to that story and, uh, because some of you might be in that place right now. Right? You're just, we're going to get into the message in just a minute. But, but I, I remember I would come, I was in my early 20s, and I had graduated from college trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was living with my parents, and so I would come to church with them just out of respect. But I was terribly uncomfortable when I was in there because I knew I wasn't living my life the way that God wanted me, me to live. And in and, and some of the weeks that I would show up for church, I would come, I, I would kind of bear through it, and, and then I would just, I would leave when it was over, and I would just go about, go about my week. But, but then there were some Sundays that I would show up in church, and, uh, and I would feel like I would have an encounter with God. Even though I was running with him, if, if you've ever been in that place, and I think someone here tonight is in that place, God's running after you. He's, he's going to chase you down. And, and when he intersects your life, and I believe that he's intersecting some people's lives tonight, that, that my encouragement to you is let him in, even if it's just a little bit. Even if it's just a little bit. Because the lie that the devil wants you to believe is that if you don't leave tonight and do everything differently that you need to do differently, then it doesn't matter. And that's a lie. Because so many people's journeys back to God, they're little steps. That's what my story was. It took months and months for me to get to a place where I was really ready to surrender my life to Christ, to make what I would say is a vow of devotion to Christ. But there were lots of small steps that led up to that. So, so whatever the little step is, you follow me? that you feel like God's asking you to do, it's enough. It's enough. Just take the step that's in front of you. Just take the step that's in front of you. Father, I pray for whoever that's for tonight. Father, and, and, and they know who they are right now. Their heart's beating out of their chest. They're, they're wiping their hands on their pants. Now they've just stopped because I said it, because they're all sweaty and nervous. And, but but they, from the moment they walked in here, they, just, they, they had the sense of your presence. And I know, God, that they know exactly what I'm talking about. We, we don't know what it is, but you're asking something of them. Just one thing that might seem small, but when the creator of the universe asks something of us, it's never small. It's enough. And I pray, Father, they would find the courage to take whatever small step that might be. And they would keep taking those steps for where it might lead. Come on, in Christ's name, and everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to be digging back into the story of Ananias and Sapphira tonight. Hey, too, just before I get started, shout out to Sean in the sound booth for, uh, for uh, I know, so you don't even know what I'm going to say, and you're already clapping. I like it. I like it. It's an encouraging crowd tonight. So he really took care of you all after communion because I forgot to unmute my mic. I mean, I forgot to mute my mic. So when I got it for the communion message, right, I take my mic, mic off of mute, mute, and then I'm supposed to. And so it was unmuted and live the whole time during worship. And so thank you, Sean, for not asking them to suffer 
through the sound of my singing for those last two songs. There you go. All right. I reached back to come up here. I was like, oh, no, my mic's on, right? Yeah. Well done, sir. Well done. We don't even have a fire alarm. This is how we clear the building. I just start singing and people leave. So, all right. All right, so, hey, let me, let me just do a little bit of recap, because this is kind of part two of last week, and if you weren't here last week, uh, all of our message, are, you can get them through our podcast, uh, through our website, all of our notes. We do a PDF document that's online every week. We tend to cover a lot of textual ground here at City Life, and so if we move faster than you would prefer, uh, then you can download those documents, and all the notes and the uh, uh, textual references are, are there. So, uh, letspraxis.com is a website that we launched this year that really talks about our discipleship model. It's also the name for our internship program, hence Praxis 9, uh, which is a nine-month program, which, which, which is a discipleship and leadership internship. Uh, but this word Praxis is the word that gives us our discipleship model. We got a book finally done this year. So if you're new to the church and you want one of these, it's free to you. Find someone in a blue shirt. They've got them in that like toolbox thing in the back there. And, uh, and can I just encourage you, don't, don't be too proud to ask for something that's free, right? Don't do it. If you're here, you maybe, or maybe you just don't like to be conspicuous, find someone in a, in a blue shirt and say, can I get one of those books that the pastor was talking about? They would love to give you one of these and talks a little bit about what we believe about being a devoted follower of Christ. So last week, we're, we started using the story of Ananias and Sapphira to help us understand one of the six commands. Now, these six commands are an important part of our discipleship model because it's one of our four numbers. It's the one, the six, the 12, and the 24. The one is the invitation that Jesus gives to us to enter into a relationship we call discipleship with him. The six are his six foundational commands for what he teaches. We believe that all of Christianity traces itself back to these six commands. And so the idea is that when I accept the one invitation, I've got to be willing to obey the six commands. And the way I obey the six commands is I walk in the 12 pathways. And when I walk in those 12 pathways, I become the 24 virtues of Christ. And so that's kind of the the basis of this discipleship model that we use. One of those six commands is the command to be perfect. And we get this out of Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in 43 and go to 48. It says, You have heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Meaning that God doesn't withhold his goodness from people just because we, he might say that they're bad. And so Jesus is saying this is what we should do, right? Because we withhold our love, we withhold our affection, we withhold things from people we don't like, and we give them freely to the people we do. And Jesus is saying you've got to stop doing that. He says if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for you? Even corrupt tax collectors do that. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Here it comes, verse 48. But you are to be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, we dug into that a lot last week, so I'm not going to recover that ground again. You can get that from the podcast. But suffice it to say, we know that we're never going to get to perfection. We're not ever going to get there. 
right? Jesus is the ultimate standard, as we talked about in communion. He's, he's, Jesus is at perfection, and we're somewhere far down the line. The command to be perfect is not that he expects us to get to perfection. The command to be perfect is the command to keep pushing forward to that end. Meaning that there should be no day that comes to you and comes to me where we wake up and say, I've gone far enough. Because this command is there to say, no, keep going. You're not ever going to make it all the way there, but make it farther than you have. I must be unwavering in my commitment and relentless in my effort to continually examining my heart and working to become more like Jesus. Be perfect is best understood as courage to change. Be perfect is best understood as courage to change. Discipleship is the process of the wrong in me dying and the right in me living. Discipleship is the process of the wrong in me dying and the right in me living. Ananias and Sapphira were moving in the opposite direction of their journey towards perfection. When I lose my courage to change, when I neglect Jesus' command to be perfect, when the wrong in me starts living and the right in me starts dying, I begin to risk what Ananias and Sapphira ultimately lost. So let's reread that story together, and then I'm going to talk about the three lessons I think that we learn from this story. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought the, the, the part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and he died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got, got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the Holy the Spirit, the, the Spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband in great fear. You think? Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Right? They, people are going home and saying, hey, how was church this weekend? Oh, you're not going to believe it. People died during the offering, right? <laughs> it's not your best way for people that are new to the church to come back the next week. Or maybe it's just the opposite, right? People are showing up. I wonder what's going to happen next week. This is a troubling story to people because we, we all have these theological boxes that make us feel safe and comfortable. And stories like this shake our boxes up. 
Stories like this cause us to re-examine our boxes. Stories like this cause us to ask ourselves some hard questions. Stories like this cause us to, to wonder some things about God. Stories like this at times seem to be a contradiction to other parts of the Bible that, that reveal God to us as this loving, caring person, like what we were reading in Matthew chapter 5, and where, we, where he's, he's loving to both the just and the unjust. Why would he allow something like this to happen to Ananias and Sapphira. I think that their death some 2,000 years ago were to give us three very distinct warnings. And the first one is the idea of a neglected assignment. A neglected assignment. If you and I don't take seriously the command that Jesus has given us to continually move towards perfection, that we can risk neglecting the assignment that we've been given. You see, because our Bible is divided up nice and neatly with chapter and verses, but when it was originally written, none of that was there because these are letters primarily that are being sent to other people. And the book of Acts is a letter that a physician, Luke, who traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys is sending to a friend and telling him the story of Christianity. And so where we have a tendency to stop in chapter 4 and, and our mind kind of picks up with a new thought in chapter 5, the end of 4 is supposed to flow right into the beginning of 5. When we read the end of 4, beginning in verse 32, it says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Verse 36, it says, For instance, there was Joseph, the one who the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. Listen to verse 37. It says, he sold a field he owned and he brought the money to the apostles. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira. You see how it changes? See, the, the, the story is given to us to contrast two people. The Holy Spirit is saying, take Barnabas, for example. He had property. It was his choice to sell it. It was his choice to give the money away. He was free to do it. He was not under any compulsion. And, and he sold the property, and it was his choice to give the money to the church. And then you've got Ananias and Sapphira. It's the same. They were property owners, which meant 2,000 years ago, these are very wealthy people, right? And they're making a decision to sell this property. It was their property to sell. They weren't under any, any compulsion, but it was their choice as to whether or not they would do it. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that Barnabas is one of the players of the New Testament. He's famous. He's important. He had an assignment. When the... Saul of Tarsus, who was killing Christians, had his encounter on the road to Damascus where Jesus came to him, right, and, and blinded him by the light. And, 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 and then all of a sudden, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, and now he's the great evangelist for the church. When he came back to the church to want to get involved, people were like, I don't want to have anything to do with him because he kills people. Fair enough. He was not trustworthy. Because of his history. Anybody here have a history? Barnabas was the only one who was willing to go to him. And Barnabas became a bridge for 
who's now Paul, into the early church. People didn't trust Paul, but they trusted Barnabas. And because they trusted Barnabas, they began to build these relationships with this newcomer who eventually God chose to give us the majority of the New Testament, who became the greatest missionary of all of history. Barnabas had an assignment, and his assignment was to help Paul step into his destiny and his purpose. The only story that we have of Ananias and Sapphira is the story of them dying at an offering in a church service. That's not why God put them on this earth. They had a purpose. They had an assignment. There was work that they were supposed to do with their lives. We believe that because we believe that about every person. All of us are born into this world with a destiny. All of us are born into this world with an assignment. All of us are born into this world because God has work for us to do. In the contrast that we're given here between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira and through their death, which I believe is this this powerful picture of what happens when we neglect our journey of discipleship. Barnabas went on to fulfill his assignment and Ananias and Sapphira there stopped on that day. There is an assignment that will be neglected in our lives if we don't take seriously this journey of discipleship that we've been given. We want to be a church that helps you become the Barnabas of of the world, not the Ananias and Sapphira's of this world. We want to be a church that, that, that helps you buy into the belief that, that God has chosen you to do something. And then we want to be a church that empowers you to understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ so that you can run after this assignment that he's given to you. We, we want to be a church that helps you believe that, yes, you can make mistakes. Yes, there's something called grace, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. But if I get to this place where I become lackadaisical about my responsibility to become like Christ, at some point there is a consequence. And part of that consequence can be that your assignment is neglected. Now, does God still use Ananias and Sapphira in a purposeful way? He does. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to their purpose. Their life wasn't completely lost because now they become a lesson for you and I. I don't know about you, but I'm, that's not how I want my life to play out. I don't, I don't want to be the one that God says, look at Fred and learn from his mistakes. Right? Do I want people to learn from my mistakes? Do I make mistakes? Sure. But do I want that to be the legacy of my life that what characterized me is that I become the standard bearer for what not to do as a disciple of Christ? And we don't want that to be your journey either. We want you to be the Barnabases of this world that believe that there is purpose for your life and that your assignment should not be neglected. Ephesians 4.16, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy 
and growing and full of love. That's supposed to be you. That's supposed to be me. Letting God fit us into a local church somewhere and give ourselves wholeheartedly to the purpose that we've been given. Be perfect. Let's find our courage to change lest we fall prey to the temptations of the day and ultimately ultimately neglect our assignment. A neglected assignment. Second is a premature eternity. If we don't take seriously this command of, of perfection, this, 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 this journey of discipleship to continue to strive to become like Christ, we risk neglecting our assignment, and I believe we can also risk a premature eternity. So this is where I want to talk a little bit about grace. Uh, you know, th- th- I've got a, a good friend who lives in this area who pastors a, a, a church, and, and we've had long conversations about this story. And we have very different beliefs about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. He looks at this story very differently because he believes that because of the doctrine of grace, that there can never be any consequence of any sort of any kind for sin. That when Jesus died on the cross, that, that we, is the same we believe, that Jesus died for our sin. And, and he believes that that means that when he died for our sin, that God will never hold me responsible, that he's never going to punish me in any way because of a sin that I might commit, whether it be a sin of omission or sin of commission. For, for him to go there, he feels like violates the doctrine of grace. Now, I'm, I'm over here. I believe there's consequence to sin. I believe that in the principle of reciprocity that I reap what I sow. And so that sometimes I've got to, if I make mistakes, if they're serious enough that I'm going to have to walk through those consequences even though I still have God's forgiveness. I believe that sometimes God punishes us. He, he becomes punitive as a father because of verses in the Bible that say things like he chastens those that he loves. Now you might say, well, Fred, as my pastor friend would say to me, well, Fred, h- how do you reconcile that with the doctrine of grace? For me, the doctrine of grace is still the most amazing promise. It means that my sin never separates me from God. It means that my sin never causes spiritual death in me like it did for Adam and Eve. And it means that my sin does never take from me the promise of heaven. Right? Grace is still this transcendent gift that God gives to me that and in spite of my sin, because we're all going to continue to sin, grace is the reminder to me that what happened to Adam and Eve when they fell in the garden, that that's not what's going to happen to me. Right? They were separated from God. There was spiritual death because of that. And then from that point forward, people who reject God are then going to be condemned to hell for all eternity. Grace says to me, when I make a vow of devotion to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of me. And his Holy Spirit is able to live in me because the cross becomes this great filter And all of the judgment of God rests with Christ on the cross and God's presence comes and fills my life. And when I make mistakes, God's spirit doesn't leave me and then wait for me to get right and then come back, right? He's moving in and moving out and moving in and moving out. That's not what he does. When God's spirit comes inside of me, he's with me for the rest of my days. Even when I make big mistakes, even when I make small mistakes, the Holy Spirit is inside of me bringing conviction to my heart so I want to come back to God. 
Come back to God, not in the sense that I've been separated from him, but come back to him in the sense that I'm ready to surrender my heart to his will. There are times in our, in our lives where we use the doctrine of grace as permission to do things that we shouldn't do because we believe that there's not ever going to be a consequence. And that's the danger of that theological camp. I don't know about you, but I can use a little bit of motivation to think that, hey, there's going to be some risks that I might take if I take these steps. Ananias and Sapphira, when you read this story with the possibility that they still went to heaven, it changes how you look at it. Years ago, something changed in me when I began to realize just because God kills someone doesn't mean that he condemns them to hell. I was like, oh, revelation. What about all those people in the Old Testament, right? It just seems so violent that he would just take them out of this world. Why would he do that? Well, well that's, that's troubling to us if we always assume that he's condemning those people to hell. But what if... Many of the times when God takes these, these lives, right, if they were a part of his family, which I think the context of Ananias and Sapphira clearly states that they were a part of the church. The only way you could be a part of the church in the first century is if you made a confession of faith in Christ and if you were water baptized. Hey, so what happens when, when you begin to read the Bible and all these stories where, where, where people are dying, what, what if they're dying is really God saying you've lost your right to be there. Now you've got to come be here with me forever. It changes the way you look at God. Now you begin to realize his act of punishment is still ultimately an act of grace because they just get to paradise sooner. So many times I think when God's taking someone's life, it's, it's not about God saying to them, you can't be with me anymore. What he's saying is, you can't be with them anymore. And the best place for you to be is to be here with me. Because you've got some things to work out. And it's going to take you about 10,000 years to do it, so let's get started. It's a premature eternity is what Ananias and Sapphira, I believe, suffered in that moment. Their assignment was neglected. They got to heaven before they were supposed to. But in no way is that an affront to the doctrine of grace. If anything, it's a picture of it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. This is Paul. You must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. Yeah, it's not the letter you want to get from a church leader. So that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Why is this man being kicked out of the church? Why is the church of Corinth being instructed, you got to, you got to get rid of that guy. He can't be there with you anymore. Yeah, because he was living with his father's wife. Now, those words are important because it's not believed that it was his biological mother, but it's, it's still pretty ugly. To the point where here in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, I got to tell you, 
When I look out into the world that it's godless, they don't even do things like this. But yet this is happening in your church. And what does Paul say? Hey, it's okay. People make mistakes. Grace is all about letting people work it out. There's no consequences for sin because all of that was dealt with Jesus on the cross. That's not what I read in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, turn this man over to Satan so that he can be dealt with, so that there can be a heart change, so that his eternity can be secure. Now, when you get to 2 Corinthians, his second letter to the church of Corinth, you know what you find? You find that this man's life has been redeemed. He's back in the church. He's a part of the community. He's abandoned this life, this reckless life of doing whatever he wanted. You see, if, if we buy into this belief that there can never be any consequence to our actions, we will not rescue some that we're supposed to rescue because sometimes it's the consequence that brings us back to a place of repentance. Grace is not threatened by consequence. I would say it's not grace unless it has the threat of consequence. Because God is more concerned about my forever than he is about my present. 1 Timothy 1.20. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two examples. Paul again. I threw them out and handed them over to Satan so they might learn not to blaspheme God. It's interesting, isn't it? This one by the name of Paul who literally murdered Christians before he had his conversion experience, he's in the church and is the leader that he is because of grace. He, he's, 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 he has this, this, this purpose and this destiny that's playing out that's, that's changing the world because he's experienced the grace of God. And so Paul, above all else, I believe, is the perfect person that God could have picked to give birth to Christianity because he had the most desperate of stories in his past. Most desperate of stories. So that God could say, if we can change and transform his life, we can change and transform anyone's life. And the way that we see lives changed and transformed is that people lock into this belief that there's a command, one of six that Jesus gives to us, that says, be perfect. Don't stop giving up in your effort, in your work to become more like Christ. And if you don't take this journey of discipleship seriously, you can end up neglecting your assignment and you can end up with a premature eternity. Be perfect. Let's find our courage to change lest we fall prey to the temptations of the day and ultimately find ourselves in heaven a little too early. All right, the third one is this. Somebody say a damaged legacy. So I was having lunch a, a few weeks ago with a good friend who's a part of City Life, and, and uh, he was giving me a, a really hard time. And so I looked at him and I said, I'm going to talk so bad about you at your funeral. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. See, because this is the pastor's ultimate threat, right? One day, there's nothing you're going to be able to do, and I'm going to have a captive audience with all the people that are loving you, Right? So, I mean, he's a really good friend. So we were laughing and, you know, we were joking around. And, and, uh, but there is going to be a day when we're not here anymore. Right? When I'm at weddings and 
You know, people are coming over to, to talk to the, to the minister and, and uh, you know, I'm asking them about what they do and then they have more questions typically about me and the church and how I found my way into ministry. And, and, I, and I usually always get the, the question, well, well, how do you like what you do? And I say, it's one of the greatest privileges that any person could ever have to be invited into the most sacred moments of people's lives. Whether it's a day like this where we just, our faces are sore from smiling because we're so excited for these young couples that are entering their future together, or, or, or whether it's be in a room and we're just, we're all just crying uncontrollably, uncontrollably, uncontrollably because of the tragedy of someone's passing that was, was, was unexpected. You know, both are very different, but yet they're both the same. And that people are inviting you to step into the, the most sacred moments of their life. At some point, your family's going to invite someone, me or someone else, to step into one of the most sacred moments of your life, which is the passing of your life from this world into the next. And when that happens, your legacy begins. And there's nothing you can do to change it. But today, you and I have every opportunity to define what that legacy is going to be. You and I are living this life, yes, because of the assignment we've been giving. Yes, because we don't want to get to heaven before we're supposed to, right? But it's also because we should have this idea planted deep inside of us. We get one shot at this world. And my life is not supposed to stop influencing people after I'm gone. My legacy is supposed to remain here and continue to touch the lives of people after I'm gone. The question is, when it touches people, what are they going to feel? When the memory of your life and the memory of my life touches people, what are they going to feel? I want the memory of my life when it touches people, I want it to inspire them. I don't want it to be a reminder of something that they've got to forget because of the pain that I caused. Acts 13, 2. One day these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. See, Acts 13.2 is a powerful partnering text to Acts 4 and Acts 5 because this could have been Ananias and Sapphira, but their legacy has been set. The legacy of their life is the reminder of how we should not live. Here's Barnabas years later. See, at the end of 4, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, I believe, were on equal footing. Equal footing. Barnabas wasn't this powerful leader in the church. He wasn't someone who had authority in the church. He was just someone who was known, just like Ananias and Sapphira. They knew his name. He was a person of wealth. He had, a, he, he had been given a nickname, right? The, the apostles had, had given him a name, the son of encouragement, the only way they would know that is because he was, he was moving in ministry in the church. 
And here, years later, you find him in this setting where God is choosing him to be the one that is sent out with the Apostle Paul to begin planting churches throughout the Roman Empire. What a legacy. What a legacy. Proverbs 13, 22 says, Good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren, but the sinner's wealth passes to the godly. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 6. It says, But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations. That's a long time. A thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You tracking with this? I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. I want to live my life in such a way where I'm characterized by that statement, that I love God and I obey his commands. Not going to always get it right. I'm going to make mistakes. But I want the overarching sense of who Fred was as a person in this world, as someone who loved God and worked hard to say yes to God at every turn. And then God says, when, when we live our lives in that way, what does he say? Unless you believe that God is given to hyperbole, right? Unless you believe that, that God likes a, a little exaggeration for effect. I don't believe that about God. He says, for a thousand generations after me, thousands of generations, his love will be poured out upon people. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? What kind of legacy am I going to leave? Have you ever noticed that as you read the New Testament, there's only one other couple that's mentioned in the New Testament who were a part of the early church? You ever notice that? It's always individuals. This person, that person. This man, that woman. There are only two couples in the entire New Testament, as, as far as from Acts on, from Acts on, the birthing of the church. I find that terribly curious. And I don't think it's coincidental in any way. We have Ananias and Sapphira. And who's my other couple? Yeah, Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah. Who incidentally, usually her name is mentioned first, but that's another sermon for another time. Come on. Just saying. Two couples, that's it. You check it out. You read. All the lists where Paul's saying greet them, right? right two, all... Ananias and Sapphira, Priscilla and Aquila. That's it. Only two couples were given. Why is that? Because I think God over and over and over and over and over again is holding this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, up for us to learn some lessons from them. And one of them is this idea of a damaged legacy. Your legacy, your legacy is connected to the life that you live and the choices that you make. The worship team's coming back up. And while they're coming, I, I want to ask you this question. When we first 
moved here in, in 2007, this discipleship model that is really defining who we are as a church, is it was, it was, it was in its inception. We didn't have all the numbers worked out and, 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 didn't, and didn't have it, have it fully formed in our hearts like it, like it is today. But some of the parts were still there. And one of the parts that were still there were, were this idea of these six commands. And one of those commands has always been, be perfect. Some of the commands have been through different revisions till finally we've kind of gotten to what we feel like God wants it to look like. But, but this one of be perfect, it's been there from the beginning. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, you, you might remember there was a saying that was popular here at City Life, and it was a question. And the question was, what's your M548 priority? Remember that? What's your M548 priority? What, what did that come from? Matthew 548. Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You and I have to be willing to live in this question. We got to live in this question of continually asking ourselves, God, what's the thing that you want me to be working on today? What's the, what's the thing that you would put your finger on in my heart that's supposed to be my focus today? Because I want to keep moving forward in my journey to become more like Christ. And I don't want my assignment to get neglected. I don't want to find myself having a conversation with God face to face before I'm supposed to. And when I breathe my last and it's all said and done, I want to have a legacy that's going to lavish love upon people for thousands of generations. Stand with me. Father, as we step into the sacredness of this moment, Father, as we're going to be leaving here tonight and going to cookouts over the next several days and laughing and having fun with friends, as we should, as we should, let us not be too quick to, to, to leave what for some might be uncomfortable. This, this moment where we stand in your presence and we let you show some things to us that need to change. That, that you would shine a light. That you would begin to reveal some things in our in our heart that are supposed to look a little differently. And maybe for that person that's here that as we started this message that's been running from you, God, that they're gonna be willing to take their next step. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit in this place would capture our attention and that you would find in us a heart that's willing to say yes in every sense and in every way. In Jesus' name. At the end of our service, as always, as we step into this moment of worship, there's people up here to pray with you.
Maybe you've got some questions about things that are happening in your heart and maybe it's something in, in, in response to this message in some, in some way that, that, and you just you need someone just to pray. It, it might even be you don't even know why you're coming. Sometimes people come up and, and, and we say, is there something I can pray? And they go, I don't even know what I want to pray for. That's okay because God knows. God knows. And there's something about having someone stand with you in a moment of prayer that cares for your heart like nothing else. Let's worship together.